celebrating New York nightlife legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Nice to see you, boys. How are you? Alive. I'm very good, thank you. Today, we have a legendary legend joining us. She is a party promoter, a journalist, creator of the iconic uh, My Comrade and Sister magazine. She is a photographer whom the New York Times called the accidental historian of drag history. They also refer to her as the studs turkle of the nip and tuck crowd. Uh, she has a new book of photographs, The Drag Explosion, which is based slightly on her highly successful uh Drag exhibit of the same name from 2015. Yeah, it's a slideshow presentation. Also, <laughs> it was it was a slideshow presentation of of drag pictures from 1987 to 1995, I guess. Yeah, approximately. Approximately, yeah. Welcome to the show, legendary legend, the iconic Linda Simpson. How are you, my dear? Well, thank you, James. I'm uh, flattered by your introduction. I've been listening to the podcast, and I'm not sure if I measure up to some of the other legends, but I appreciate the intro. Uh, you look absolutely gorgeous. Thank you for getting a blowout before you joined us today. Your hair is fabulous, for those of you who can see. Thank you, James, very much. I uh, was doing a little research about you. I took some. Uh, I was looking at some interviews I uh, see that you grew up in Gaylord, Minnesota. Yes. And by the way, hi, hello, Randy and Fenton also. Um, um, I did. Isn't that funny? I, 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 was, I was born in Gaylord. We actually lived the town next door, but moved at a very young age. But I was kind of, you know, maybe destiny. Well, that's a shame because I took the tour of Gaylord, Minnesota on YouTube and I learned all sorts of exciting oh. facts about it because I see that it is... Uh, a town of in the 70s and 80s, it had less than 2,000 people in it. It was very small. It was located on the shores of Lake Titicaca. Are you serious? No, it's Lake Titawa or something like that. <laughs> no, there was the giant aqua park. I had all these things I wanted to talk about. We, I moved by the time I was two years old. So I really, and I don't think I've ever been back. So I don't really know it. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> Well, it will cancel all these things. We'll talk about it. But I did want to just sort of talk about uh, young Linda Simpson growing up in Minnesota and what that was like. Well, I, you know, um, grew up in various parts of the state. And um, eventually my parents divorced and um, I ended up in St. Paul for my junior high and high school years. And by then I was, you know, kind of a developed young gay boy. Um, you know, very stereotypical sissy. And I was very infatuated with New York City. So I knew from a young age I wanted to move. And I was lucky that I lived in St. Paul. We were by a college also. So I had some access to like the Village Voice and interview After Dark magazine. Yeah, interview. Things that were hard to find. But you, you know, if you lived in a city, at least you might have a little access. Did you have allies? Did you have did you have other sort of like-minded friends in while you were Um I well I did um in high school. I I can't say I had a lot of strong friends before then um just because I was a little alienated, but in high school I managed to strike up some really good relationships and I'm I'm still friends with most of them to this day. And our common bond in many ways was disco. And so we were sneaking off to the clubs, you know, even at a very early age and really, um, you know, bonded over the music of Donna Summer, et cetera. So this was, this was late 70s, early 80s, I guess. It was. And then mm -hmm. you moved to New York and you went to NYU to study advertising at first, right? <gasps> Well, I went to, this is so long ago that you remember when people would go back to college, went to college to study liberal arts. Yeah. And so that's what I went for. I mean, people are much more careerist now and, you know, have their, um, you know, their, what are they called? Major. That's the major. way I'm for. Thank you. Anyways, I, I only used college really, at least NYU, as an excuse to get to New York. I lived in the dorms. That's exactly what I did, too. Yes. 
Yes. Back then there were very, it would, NYU was not like it is now. It was mostly a, a local school. And so I was very uh, thrilled, you know, to be living in Manhattan. You know, I just want to say, I, I think that is such a common thread. You know, like, for example, I went to film school. That's why I met Randy. But I didn't, and I went to NYU film school. But it was really about getting to yeah. New York. Mm-hmm. That's all yeah. it was about. Like, yeah, film school, great. Okay, that was the reason why. And I think so many gay kids recognize the place and make this pilgrimage. It just, you just see it over and over and over and over. I, I just think that's such an interesting idea, like why that would be, you know? What do you think? Well, I think especially back then, just to jump in for a second, especially back then because, like, you know, there wasn't the interwebs or, there, like, you, you did need to make the pilgrimage. You did need to have an excuse. Yeah. It's not like you could say, I want to go to New York just to be gay and, like, and it's fabulous there. And so it'd be interesting because I think in the in the 80s and the 70s, Probably so many gay people like dropped out of NYU after the first year. I know, right? <laughs> no, there's no way I could have told my parents I'm I'm going to New York because I want to be a party girl. I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. I needed to go to college, so I applied to NYU, and I lasted all of about a year. I, I chose all my classes to be at five o'clock at night so that I could go partying all day and then dress up, get dressed to go to classes and then go straight from the classes to go out. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't very studious, but I felt like, I really do, I mean, this is kind of a cliche, but I felt like, you know, it was a big education just being in New York. I had only visited New York like once before and and it was culture shock for me. New York at that time was very, very different than the rest of the country. Um, everything from like, you know, the stores that you shopped at, to the accents, to the attitudes of the people. And so for me, it was a lot of adjusting. I mean, in a good way. It was really like, you know, um, very culturally educational. And, um, but I feel like that was, you know, even more important than I probably, whatever I could have learned in a classroom. Well, you you dropped out, but then you went back and you went to FIT as well. Is that true? I I eventually, yes, I left NYU about after a year and a half, went back to Minnesota for a little while. I got some money together because I knew I wanted to live in an apartment at that or thought I wanted to live in an apartment at that point. I actually ended up living in a dorm kind of experience again. But I came back and I went to FIT. And that's where I did at least salvage a two-year degree in communications. You weren't doing drag at this point. I think you had said that the first time you did drag was for a Halloween parade or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. There weren't many people doing drag back then. It was a it was drag was not very hip. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't very cool to do. In fact, I think I looked upon drag as being kind of I, I mean, I was fascinated by like, you know, people like the Warhol Queens and Divine, etc. But but drag queens themselves were kind of a old-fashioned lot at that time. And it was mostly confined to kind of like, I don't know, like a West Village bar where, you know, some queen would come out, like, you know, lip-syncing to Judy Garland, etc. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, and there's no, no, a no. lot of camp value. But it really didn't have anything to do with my hip kind of like, you know, new wave sensibilities at that time. Well, were you going to the big clubs like Area and Palladium and Limelight yep. things? You did. You were going... Um, and were you Danceteria. Danceteria. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Were, were, were you going out a lot? Tell me a little bit about the parties you went to and the clubs you went to. Yeah, no, I like to hit them all. Um, so I, I mean, I knew who all of you were, Randy Fenton, James, before I met you, because I was very, you know, immersed in the nightlife, mostly as an observer. And, um, I read details magazine, you know, religiously, um, paper magazine, etc. I, I thought nightlife was very, very interesting. I really enjoyed it. You know, it was such an incredible amount of uh, interesting people, and there was so much creativity going on. I loved the music, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I wasn't just gay places I was going to. You know, a lot of the clubs back then were very mixed, oh, yeah. and I enjoyed that also. Um, tell me about when you discovered Pyramid. Well, I think probably, you know, I mean... I mean, the Pyramid as a, you know, kind of drag hips place, I think started like in the early 80s, maybe even like 80. And so, you know, over the years, I went to it 
once in a while. But I think it was really around the mid-80s where I started really getting um, interested in it. That's when their very famous gay party was going on Sunday nights called Whispers. Whispers, I'm happy you're gay. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And that was a blast. And so, um, so that's when I started meeting people, um, uh, that were kind of the movers and shakers over there and becoming friendly, like Taboo and Happy Face. They were roommates at the time. Bunny, um, Sister, Dimension, Billy Beyond, etc. You know, that whole gang. Now, I just want to cut in here because I wrote an article in 1986 for a Canadian magazine called Graffiti because no one else would publish whatever I was writing. And I... It was called Super Drag because I saw in the pyramid, like you were just saying, a whole new kind of drag. Like drag queen was, my only exposure before that was to sort of West Village drag queens. As you say, nothing wrong with that, but it was old school. And this super drag was kind of punk is three questions all in one. Was the pyramid where you felt this super drag was sort of where you first became aware of it? Like how did you kind of chance upon that new kind of drag? And how would you describe it? And do you think the pyramid was the center of it? Oh, yeah. Well, I think it was. I think you're, I think what you said was um, true. It had like a punkish quality in that it was taking a genre that was stale and shaking it up. And it was almost kind of a parody of drag in some ways. It wasn't about like precision lip syncing or having like, you know, the best wigs or the best outfits, but it was more just about like embracing like a really fun energy. And um, a lot of it was pulp, pop culture references. A lot of it was very tongue in cheek, you know, very, but very witty people too on stage that were able to, um, you know, entertain in a very modern way. And what I thought too, and I'm pretty sure this is correct, it was extremely unique. There wasn't anything like that happening anywhere else in the world. I mean, maybe London a little but but really New York's um, scene was very, very um, special. And that, and um, for a while, you know, the East Village was the only place that you could really experience kind of a certain sensibility. There was, besides the pyramid, there was the boy bar too. And I would give them, you know, credit with like, you know, those, those early days too. It's, it's great to hear this because it sort of reinforces this feeling, you know, the, of, uh, um, that we had, Fenton and I had during that time, feeling like we were, you know, caught up in some magical moments surrounded by all of these magical people. It was it was so inspiring. I mean, you know, New York in general during that time, there were all these microcosms and there were all these different scenes. But that drag explosion coming out of the pyramid did seem pretty, pretty special. I want to build on this a little bit where um, I, I have a theory about uh, what was happening around that time vis-a-vis Pyramid, Boy Bar, and the Club Kids that I sort of want to lay out to you and see if you agree or disagree and if what, what you think about this. Where I think that what was happening at the Pyramid was that it was deconstructing drag uh, for the first time. It was taking it apart. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was, and then building it back up again, building a Frankenstein monster out of it. And it was doing it in a theatrical uh, setting. It was doing it on stage. And it was sort of redefining it for the new millennium. What was happening at Boy Bar was it was refining drag and streamlining it. And it was like the supermodels. It was pumping out a factory of supermodels. And it was sort of taking the idea that drag was less about the performance and more about the personality and more about creating superstars of drag, like Connie Girl and Miss Guy and Shannon and all those, really just the Miss Princess Deandra. And it was a, a, it was about performance, but it was very much about the, the identity of the drag queens. And then you had club kids coming along, and they were sort of the Bugs Bunny, the Looney Tunes. They were just sort of blowing up everything. And so you had those three different subsets of drag and each was doing something different to bring it into 
uh, a new era. Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I would say I think that the pyramid, there was even more emphasis on personality than the boy bar. I think the boy bar was more um, often uh, ensemble-ish. Like, you know, they were very polished in yes, their presentation, their yes. stage shows uh-huh. and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I think that the club kids were great about creating an environment. You know, they weren't performers per se, right. but they would create, you know, this wonderful, you know, blue. Is that the word? <laughs> that, you know what I mean? That you would go into. Um, but I think you're, but I think that's very accurate, all your observations, definitely. And it was a really, like, fertile time because there were all these different scenes going on and they kind of intersected, but they were also their own separate entities at the same time, too. I think also something you said earlier about how so many of the pyramid queens, there was this this wit. There was something incredibly fresh about you just didn't know what what to expect in terms of the performances. And it was gonna be more than a lip sync. It was always gonna be layered. And and there was lots of humor. It was mostly about humor. So, yeah. you know, it was make the audience laugh. So it was, um, you know, comedy ruled. When I think of Disco Frida, the first time I saw oh, Disco yeah. Frida, and, you know, Dean John, uh, Ethel Eichelberger, John Kelly, Sister Dimension, Happy Face. So many of those people just, I remember every single show, they just, the off-kilter nuttiness of it all. And also it was fun, too, because it seemed very insidery. You know, you either you got the humor or you didn't, you know? So the people that came to the Pyramid, I mean, first of all, you had to make an effort to get there because it was way the hell over on Avenue A. Which, you had to take a, ta- a Sherman tank. It was so, it was, yeah. it was very dangerous. Was, Avenue A was... It was dangerous back yeah. then. So only the people that were at the Pyramid kind of wanted to be there. It wasn't just like, you know, masses of people just walking down the street and randomly entering. So it was um, a, a shared sensibility. So everyone... You know, the audience and the performers all had kind of the same sense of humor. You talk about how Taboo was very much a mentor to you when you, when you met Taboo. Mm-hmm. And that the first time you did drag was you met, that's how you first met Taboo. You were had an idea about doing a gay pride float for, for Pyramid. Yeah, this is even before I started doing drag. I, I, I wanted to become more involved in my gay community. So I joined Heritage of Pride, which is the organization that, at least that was what it was called back then put on the the gay parade and the gay parade was pretty dull back then so you know who gave me the idea actually to approach taboo was trey spiegel because i was doing freelance work with trey he he mentioned and so he said why don't you call up you know stephen tashan uh which is taboo's real name and so i called up taboo and i said i had this idea for a flow and he was um receptive and so we created this you know crazy flow with mostly people from the pyramid. But I marched alongside um, out of drag as a monitor. And the float was a real hoot and really stood out at a time when, you know, the, like I said, the parade was pretty dull back then. So it was just fun to have something that was colorful and interesting and representing kind of like an East Village sensibility. Now, what year was that? It was 86. A6. And, and Taboo is the one who helped you come up with the name Linda Simpson, right? See, at this, yeah, I started doing drag and, um, you know, just joined, decided to join uh, the, you know, the gang. And I didn't really even have a name at first. And so finally, Taboo just suggested Linda. My real last name is Simpson. Uh-huh. And so it seemed to work. Because um, I was thinking like, oh, I should get a crazy name like Happy Face or Sister Dimension or something like that. But instead, uh, it distinguished me to have more of a real name. Well, it's, it's very much a, a Midwestern girl's name. I know. And it's just, it, and it's really. just, it, it speaks to who you are and where you're from. <laughs> kind of it does. It, it, it does. So... Um, but anyways, yes, thank you, Taboo, for giving me a Midwestern name. <laughs> have you always had, because you have this this great, like, sort of dry sense of humor. Did Linda, did Linda bring that out in you, or have you always been sort of, has that always well, been? Well, 
Have you always been a bitch, I guess, is what we're asking. <laughs> I think, I guess it, like, gave me license to be, you know, bitchy. If I, I'm, the thing is, I'm not that bitchy a person. <laughs> but, I, but I think you're right. I have a dry sense of humor sometimes that people interpret sometimes as being a little bitchier than it is. But I kind of, like... Uh, you know how, like, some drag queens will put on a wig and makeup, and all of a sudden they're a totally different person? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, they've changed from a shy, retiring guy into, like, you know, a monster. Bunny! <laughs> Have you ever seen Bunny on a drag? <laughs> well, I would say Bunny, though, still has a similar personality, <laughs> even, like, you know, um, in or out of drag. But I kind of, like, think the same. I think Linda is just kind of an extension of my male self as being, like, a totally different persona so the humor wasn't you know a, a total you know totally different than how i normally uh get through life well it's funny because um i've seen you i've read in interviews where you've said that you were a little intimidated to meet some of the drag legends like joey arias and lee bowery oh totally totally but i think that they were able, that they all ended up being intimidated of you too well I had a talk with Joey recently, and Joey told me that. And I, I, I always thought that I was like this, you know, f- even after I lived in New York for a while, I always felt kind of like the fresh off the boat, you know, Midwestern kid, you know, that was never going to be as cool as everybody else. So I, I was completely intimidated by everybody and still am sometimes to this day. With the- I just, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think Randy and I always thought we were completely outside the scene and that no one liked us and that no one really wanted us around and we just sort of wouldn't go away. And I think that... Um, I think that's true. You never... I, I said that to Diane Brown. She's like, no, darling. Diane was like, no, darling, we love you. And of course, but even then, I still didn't believe her. I thought she was just being nice and charitable, you know. Outsiders are, I mean, I think that's a common feeling for everyone to a certain extent, right? I mean, you know, you're, 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 you're attracted to New York to begin with because you feel like an outsider in your own, you know, your own community. And then, I don't know, because it feels like we've had many conversations about this where we're talking to someone like Linda, who's a legend, and they talk about being intimidated by someone and it's kind of surprising to hear, but... Well, I think it's funny because I never experienced that. I was never intimidated. And I always thought I was the legend. Uh-huh. And everybody ended up, everyone hated me, but I thought that everyone loved me. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, um, I guess, I don't know. I mean, of course, now as an older person, I feel much more at ease, you know? And a lot of the people that I've known since then, I feel like, you know, if I was intimidated by you then, it was more just because, or if I was, you know, if I seemed rude, it was more just because of my own insecurities, not because I disliked you. Yeah. Tell me about the party that you threw at Pyramid. What was that? I started getting into the party throwing um, a scenario in the late 80s. I had a magazine that I published, an underground magazine called My Comrade. And so I would publish... I would publish issues and then we would have like release parties and I would do drag for that. And so that was kind of my first foray into real party throwing. What was the name of Oh, the the parties the party that I threw at the um pyramid was called Channel 69. Oh, and you also had the the the, the um cable show Channel 69, right? Yes. Well, someone videotaped it and did put it on cable. But um, what happened is, at that point, the pyramid was at a low ebb. Like, that glorious scene that had happened during the 80s really was not occurring at the pyramid anymore. Everybody had kind of abandoned ship or died. This is what, this was like 88, 89? Uh, well, the party started in 90, but I would say that the pyramid for a couple of years, or a year probably at least, was on a decline. And so it just wasn't like the hip place to go anymore. So kind of naively, um, me and uh, a DJ named Danny Johnson decided, went in and said, oh, we'll do a Wednesday night party. And um, not, not realizing kind of that the odds were against us. But we did do a party and, you know, kind of like went with the the 
format of many successful, you know, shows, uh, drag shows like in the past where we would have like different performers every week with me being the hostess and introducing them. And by this time, the sensibility had kind of changed at the pyramid too, because those, you know, the queens that had been a little bit more, oh, I don't know, charactery at the at the pyramid, that kind of sensibility had gone out a little, and we kind of brought in a new wave of queens that was a little more girly, you know, in their representation. And and it was a mix. It was like some queens like Bunny and Taboo and uh, you know Ru RuPaul and. I was going to say, was this when Rue and Lahoma and everybody were go-go dancing? Is that around this period? Yeah, Lahoma wasn't as involved for Channel 69 because I think, uh, when did Disco 2000 start? That was 90, I think. Yeah, so that was on a Wednesday also. So Lahoma really mm. wasn't there much. Wait, I didn't realize that um, Disco 2000 was competing with your with, with your party. Well... I wouldn't say it was competing, but we were on the same night. And oftentimes, because I think Disco 2000 went later than we did, people would hop over from mm. the pyramid to the limelight. But but anyway, but our show is where it won, too, you know, which just goes to show you how late the nightlife was back then when people were still going out of the limelight at like two or three. I re- always remember that, that they would say the show starts promptly at midnight. And it would be two thirty, three o'clock in the morning before somebody would finally stumble on stage. That was just that was everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Now I remember like not leaving my house often to go to the clubs before one. Certainly. Oh, I would start. You'd start. You'd get a bottle of vodka at ten, and friends would start coming over, and you'd start getting dressed. And sometimes you wouldn't go out until like two o'clock in the morning. Well, you have the podcast. I was, <laughs> have the makeup to worry about. So, anyways, when did you remember how we first met? Do you remember the Red Zone party? Was that when we first met? Well, that's when we first started. That's when we first sort of connected and and became friendly. Do you do you remember this? Because I I I remember the story pretty well. I was just thinking about the incident today. Would you please remind me? Well. It started because I was at a meeting. There were weekly meetings for at, at Red Zone with Maurice Brahms and Michael Ailey about the parties that were going to be coming up. And we didn't, that Michael had scheduled everything, but there was a hole in the schedule from like three weeks away. And Maurice keeps saying, what are we going to do for this Thursday? What are we going to do for this Thursday? And Michael said, oh, James will throw a party. But J- James is throwing a party. So I said, fine, I'll throw a party. And then the week before, I hadn't still come up with an idea. And Michael said, well, we're throwing a party for this new club kid who's in town and a banana, and she's fabulous. She's an it girl. She's just wonderful. You're going to love her, Maurice. And I looked at Michael, and I was like, what in the hell are you talking about? He said, we'll find someone. We'll find someone who's going to be Anna Banana. We'll just we'll, we'll just have a party for someone named Anna Banana. And it came to, like, the day before, and we still didn't have anyone. And I was like, Michael, who the fuck is Anna Banana? Who are we going to have come be this it girl? And so Michael said, going through his, his Rolodex, and he saw Les Simpson, Les Simpson. We'll have lessons to dress up. And so you came and you were this new it girl from out of town from Miami. And, and we were like, it's, it's, here she is, ladies and gentlemen. And we brought you up on the stage. And Stephen, Stephen Lewis said, oh, for fuck's sake, it's Linda Simpson. Very loud. Uh, but you can't carried on. And you were wonderful as the new it girl in town. And that's how we first became friends. Do you remember any of that? I do. I remember it was, I didn't have to do much. I remember it was easy money. So thank you very much. I think we just, we just plopped you on stage and said you were this new girl from Miami. I, it was pretty hilarious <laughs> because it, it was very sitcom. <laughs> I just, I just remember Stephen Lewis had the microphone and you walked on stage and he just plopped and he was like, oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, uh, I didn't remember the name was Anna, but uh, it was hilarious. <laughs> Because you were a, a longtime performer at Wigstock, and uh, let's talk a little bit about Wigstock and and mm-hmm. the influence that that had. Definitely. Well, you know, Wigstock, of course, was the social event of the year for many years. What year did Wigstock start? Like eighty five or something? I think it was like eighty four, eighty five, and it was in the the band shell in Tompkins Square yeah. Park. They just they all stumbled out one at one morning, bleary eyed at five a.m. and said, "Let's put on a show." Yes. And so, and so Bunny, you know, went with it 
and kept the annual event going. And it was always a blast um, because it was, you know, a huge variety show held during the day, which made it real unique. I mean, drag queens usually weren't seen. Dear God in heaven, seeing some of those girls in the sunlight for the first time. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> but um, but it was cool. you know it was always very amusing and bunny it was you know very bunny centric and that she was the hostess um and so was on stage for you know as much of the time you know as many hours as it, the show went on um bunny and i like you know started performing together at the pyramid and although bunny and i i mean are friends in real life we have um, sort of a you know uh, a bad badling stage personas, you know. So she's always you know I mean insulting me, and she's prone to do with many people. <laughs> and I am not you know reticent about coming back with a uh, a <laughs> remark perhaps about her age, weight, etc. Once in a while. But that being said, Bunny is much more crude. And um, bombastic, and that's not always my style. So it makes for an interesting mix. And so when you would do, when you would be on stage at Wigstock, um, you would do sort of a little stand-up comedian, a comedy set, yeah, right? And you then know what? You would, you would banter back and forth. Yeah, I kind of experimented, but some of it was mostly of it was comedy. One year, I bombed. Like I what? remember this oh, year. Oh my god, I remember. That's what I've been trying to get at this whole time. Oh I want to god. talk about you bombing. Well, you know on what? Stage That's the Wigstock. year. Though that was one of the years that they were filming Wigstock for the Barry Schill's Wigstock documentary. Um, if they had been smart, they would have kept that in. I mean, my reputation would have been ruined forever, but it <laughs> would have shown a little bit of drama because I did it. Uh, I, I did a comedy routine, which I had tested at the Pyramid and went over great there. Then I got to the Pyramid. That was the year that RuPaul had become famous. So there were tons and tons of newcomers. It was a very warm day. Um, spontaneously, a couple of politicians spoke right before me. You know, blah, blah, blah. Wait, is it, was this on 14th Street? Was this the, the year that it was? This was at Tompkins Square. And then someone fainted in the front row. And so there was a big commotion about that. Anyways, this is what I have to follow. Two blabbermouth politicians, someone fainting. And I'm with this new audience that doesn't know me. I went over like a lead balloon. I mean, people were practically <laughs> booing at the end. That being said, I, um, you know what I mean? I came out of there a stronger person. And I went on a PR campaign. And I was like, you know... I remember plastering posters in the East Village, like, you know, most controversial drag queen in New York, you know, <laughs> dares to make jokes about Lady Bunny, RuPaul, you know, whatever. You know, I mean, there were silly jokes, but, you know, I think people didn't understand that I was, you know, doing insider humor. They thought I was just like, you know, some bitter bitch. Oh wait, they, they thought you were just they thought you you just got up on stage and started insulting Bunny and Ruin. They were they they turned against you for that? Yeah, they didn't know the connection or they didn't really even understand drag, you know, drag queen like in a reading, you know? So I just was like this, you know, sacrificial lamb in many ways. <laughs> um but 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 that being said, um I managed to survive. I was asked back to Wigstock for many years. And I've managed to actually my last couple of wig stocks have been my best. If there's ever a wig stock again, I'll be sure to shine. <laughs> do, um, do you think you could just talk a little bit about my comrade? Because because uh, some people listening might not. Because it was it was really special. Oh yeah, and a little bit about, about on the other side was Sister Magazine as well for for lesbian readers. I guess um, I started publishing. It was a zine, and I started. Uh, I started in '87, and it was kind of a reaction to, uh, you know, the AIDS crisis a lot. Um, just it was a very, you know, dark time, as you know, you probably all remember. And um, I just felt like the gay press then was very lugubrious and very, like, you know, like woe is me. I mean, not that there wasn't reason to be sad, but there was such an emphasis on just kind of this um, uh, tragedy as opposed to sort of like being invigorating. And so I created a zine that kind of plugged into this activism that was going on. 
And also to the drag queen scene that was going on in the East Village, which I thought was like, you know, very activist and radical in its own way. And uh, so it was all this kind of like tongue in cheek militancy. Uh, There was an urgency about it. Um, As the magazine went on, it became kind of more, mm, uh, you know, more kind of like social, like uh, just kind of... um, um, a profile of a lot of people that didn't get much coverage otherwise, especially drag queens, etc. It was sexy. We had a lot of sexy guys. We had centerfolds. I was going to say, because there, there was a lot of um, emphasis on go-go boys yeah. and sort of that, that whole scene as well, which wasn't getting covered in a lot of the mainstream, you know, gay magazines. Yeah, and it was kind of like everybody can be a hero in this day and age. And, and the theme was kind of like gay love, gay unity, and you know, gay camaraderie. So it tried to be very, I, I tried to make it very upbeat and positive, and a lot of people helped contribute. And, you know, um, there weren't a lot of issues. I think by the time it started, by, by the time it um, stopped publishing in like 92 or 4, I think it was 94, there had been like 10 issues. So it wasn't like, you know, extraordinarily prolific, but it made an impact. And um, and it certainly helped, you know, kind of establish me in some ways. I mean, that that wasn't my intent necessarily, but it it did give me sort of a calling card in some regards. Um, at the same time, you were also working at Time Out magazine, right? Um, I started working at Time Out in the late '90s during kind of its glory okay, years, okay. and that was. Kind of, you know, I did have a little experience at that point of like putting my own magazine together. So I think that helped. You know, I never went to journalism school. I kind of wish I had or, but, but I, but I managed to sort of, you know, be a self-taught journalist. I was I think it's probably important that you didn't go to journalism school because you had an outsider mentality and you had that idea of, I was, I'm going to do this and I'm going to sort of blow up the idea of what. Uh, so nightlife journalism is, and I'm sort of going to come at it from a different point of view. Like, well, I think, I think Pansy Beat was sort of the same idea, yes. right? Sort of, yes. Yeah. Pansy Beat was another gay zine that was going on. They were influenced by my comrade. I mean, Michael Economy, who was yeah, editor, definitely. said so. But there was kind of like a little network of gay zines at that point. Um, um, Vaginal Davis was doing something in LA. Yeah, Bruce yeah. Bruce was doing something in Toronto. The club kids were doing Project X magazine. Yes, exactly. That came um, up, um, upon us. And then, so, yeah, it was, you know, the magazine era. And people were doing kind of, like, underground uh, publications. You also brought it back in 2004, right? A couple of issues, a revival. Uh, yeah, to some success. I'm not quite sure if I... Uh, I think if I did it again and never say never, I would do it a little differently. My comrade's always been very experimental magazine that has shaped, that has changed um, sizes, uh, you know, changed contents, uh, uh, you know, regular contents, etc. So it's always been a little bit experimental. So, you know, in that way, you never fail. And then it's always you're producing something or another. Well, you know, because I saw that, you remember, a few years ago, the Pansy Bee came out with a collection of, of all their issues. Do you ever think that you would come out with a collection of My Comrades? Well, I um, yes, but I think I would do it differently. Pansy Bee kind of, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I have it. It's just like an anthology of like every page of every um, issue that they did. I think that I would probably be a little more, uh, edit it a little more and be a little more selective. I don't, one of the problems with my comrade, it wasn't always printed that great. So, you know, it, a lot of, I think, the issues, uh, I would like to do, reprint them in sort of more clear manner, just so people could, you know, really appreciate what went into it. Not to take away from, like, you know, it's ragtag effect. I was going to say, because there's something sort of punk rock about all the smudges and the misspellings. and It's true, but I think if you had it in an anthology, you wouldn't get that feeling. I think you'd probably more, I think you'd just kind of like look at it as being a little messy in some ways. <laughs> like yourself. <laughs> I remember it so vividly, and I think it really had impact, and I think it would, that would be a great idea one day. 
Well, I am doing um, in June of this year, I'm having um, an exhibit of my comrade at a gallery in the East Village oh. called Howell. Oh, I love Howell, yeah. And um, there will be some sort of publication that comes along with that. So, um, yeah, um, I think the magazine was kind of influential in a way because mm-hmm, what it did, it, it helped kind of influence like the mainstream gay press too. Um, so they took kind of a cue from my comrade and, um, you know, it became more interesting and mm-hmm. uh, uh, more lively. Mm-hmm. Oh, around that time, there weren't a lot of nightlife photographers. When I think about it, you had... You had John Simone, you had Patrick McMullen, you had mm-hmm. Tina Paul. Yeah. Uh, Alexis DiBiazio was taking a lot of pictures of drag queens. But you specifically uh, were not so much nightlife photographer. You were just, you were taking pictures of your friends getting ready. You were mm-hmm. taking pictures of people behind stage, backstage, um, at Gay Pride Parade, on the street, after hours. You were just, you were just snapping pictures with your little point and click camera. And you took between you took about like five thousand pictures between eighty seven and ninety six, right? I mean, you you took them all and then you just sort of threw them in a in a shoebox and didn't really think about it that much, right? Well, not really. Uh, once again, I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, I wasn't a photographer. I don't even you know refer to myself as a photographer still because I don't know anything about cameras. But I did take a lot of photos. I mean, there were some people. Like me, you know who I think has a lot of photos is Lahoma. I think Lahoma yeah. actually has some, probably a lot of great, great photos that she's not doing anything with. Well, I, I think Lahoma, um, a lot of those are Alexis DiBiazio because Alexis would take pictures and give them to Lahoma, and then they would get like two or three copies, and then Lahoma would pass them out. Well, that's probably true too. Alexis was, yeah, another person taking photos. But I just remember Lahoma always sort of, she was always waving around. But I do seem to remember there was a yeah. camera always in her yeah. hand. Yeah. <laughs> pulling down her skirt with one hand and with the camera in the other. I don't know if it was pointed in any particular direction, but uh-huh. I just have a memory of that. Well, anyways, I think she's probably one person, too, that, could, that would have a collection like mine. And the thing is, too, my photo taking was very random, though. I wasn't doing it to document, like, a scene necessarily. So there's a lot, I look back and there's a lot of like, you know, experiences and situations where I wish I had brought out my camera more and taken photos. However, it was such a different era back then. You know, a lot of the gay places, they didn't want photo taking. A lot of the clubs did want photo taking. I remember my camera being confiscated once at the limelight. Oh, I remember things like that happening, yeah. So it's like, I wasn't like a paparazzi photographer just going up to people like randomly and taking their photos. But I was, I would, oh, I mean, 99% of the people I took photos of, I knew. But but cameras weren't such a welcome addition sometimes into the club. I know. Can you imagine there was a time when people didn't want to have their picture taken? It's such an extraordinary thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know, in places like Area and and uh, Palladium and things like that, you if if you were Patrick McMullen or Wolfgang or Ben Buchanan, you had to you had to be a pre-approved mm. in order to take the camera mm-hmm. in. And like I said, like you said, that there were so many times where celebrities certainly, you know, were off their tits and didn't want to be photographed. Yeah. They were, you know, this yeah. is where they went to be fucked up. You, it was a sort of a private thing and you didn't want pictures being taken. Be in, you had to be approved to be able to bring the camera there. And then you had to very, be, you know, tread on, you know, tender hooks in, in order to get your to get celebrities to approve your pictures. Yeah. And I think people were like, had a like natural, um, politeness about it too people weren't trying to like you know gotcha you know what i mean throwing up in the bathroom you know so um but also a lot of people were you know back at the gay scene a lot of people just didn't want their you know were closeted you might get a person in the background that was like you know a lawyer who was married on park avenue and you know they they didn't (laughs) didn't want their image you know (laughs) to be shown you know, um, you say you're you you aren't really a trained photographer, but and I, I'm holding this up just in case some because some people watch this, right? Do people just listen uh, to this podcast? Why are we? I, I don't know. 
But this book is, it's so, it's such Why a- How are we even doing this? Nobody watches, nobody listens. No, no, but, but for the people who are listening, Linda's book, The Drag Explosion, it's such a great book. And there's, there is this sort of intimacy of all the photographs. You really feel like you're there and present. And there's a great story here. So I do, I, I do like plugging it like in a meaningful way. It's a great accomplishment. Congratulations. And people who haven't um, seen this book, they should get it. Where can they get it? They can get it anywhere, right? They can get it anywhere. Um, I don't know about anywhere. It's not that... Um nationally available but but there is a the publisher is called domain d-o-m-a-i-n and the website is domainbooks.org or if you go to the drag explosion.com you can get info too thank you very much randy for those nice words about it i was very pleased too with the book um the the publisher of domain books is a guy named david Knowles, and he also art directed it and I think he did a great, great job. So um, it was a really good collaboration between the two of us. And I've heard, you know, f- other enough people say by now, you know, that it's a good book. But I recognize that, you know, a lot of people are, uh, you know, have a positive um, reaction to it. And um, I- I'm glad. I'm glad, of course. I mean, and also what's nice, too, is that I hear from like a lot of younger people, especially, wow, these photos are great. And I think that's great that, you know, you didn't necessarily have to be there to appreciate um, this scene that when mm-hmm. that uh, occurred. I would even go farther. And I would say that not only is it just a fabulous chronicle of the times, but it is, it, it's art. And I would sort of um, say that it's, it's very much like Nan Golden. It's very much Nan Golden, Diane Arbus. I mean, it is, it is museum-ready pictures. They yes. are just, it's absolutely fantastic to see so many of those people in just such a casual setting and to see them, mm. you know, you, you see so many fabulous pictures of people performing, but it's nice to see, you know, people just hanging out behind behind the stage and at home. It's just fabulous. I appreciate a lot of, like you mentioned, there's there were, you know, a few photographers working the scenes back then. But I think what the, um, the style back then, too, was mostly for black and white photography. Mm-hmm. And so I think that my photos stick out a little, too, because they're in color. And um, that helps, I think, give it a, you know, a vividness, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, and also, like I said, I knew the people. So there was, I don't know, an intimacy, you know, that yeah. occurred between me and the subject. So I think that helps make it a, a, a fun book in that way, too. Oh, oh la, 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 Randy's la, showing la, la, a, a, a spread, which is of a go-go <laughs> boy named Dimitri dancing at the pyramid. And who should be tipping him? <gasps> It's RuPaul. Let's talk a little bit about some of the people and some of the photographs, because um, there are some that just take my breath away when I, when I see them. And uh, specifically, Paige. Whenever I see a picture of Paige and I just think, oh, you know, like, I wish that that more people knew about what a nut she was and what a genius, brilliant, brilliant person. Well, Paige was um, a very um, beautiful transgender um, woman who was a good friend of mine. In fact, we lived a couple buildings away from each other on 13th Street. So we were really in each other's lives a lot. And she, a lot of people refer to her as the white Grace Jones because she had that <laughs> blonde hair that was, um, what's it called? What's that style called? Um, um, like a flat top, sort a flat of. Top. Kind yes, of, yeah. exactly. And she was constantly in different sunglasses, like pointy sunglasses, um, which gave her kind of a mysterious air, but very beautiful woman. But she, you know, her loyalty was to the freaky downtown set. And I I actually think in many ways, this is true with Paige and many people on the nightlife scene, I think they were, they were performance artists. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And her life was her performance. Every time she dressed up, it was it was art, yeah. Exactly. And so she had one foot, which, well, she had kind of like, she was popular in the East Village scene. 
She was also like, you know, involved in the club kids scene, but she was very much into the trans scene back in um, Midtown. So Paige introduced me to a lot of that scene, like the Edelweiss um, and Sally set. Oh God, we need to do a whole episode on Edelweiss. I mean, the the, the whole Midtown trans scene. But that's one place that I don't think is very documented at all because that was a very forbidden zone for photos. But but Edelweiss was a phenomena, and and so was Sally's, and um, that was Paige. Very like you know, um, she liked walking the wild side, and you know, I mean, ultimately Paige mm, had a tragic uh, death, uh, which was due to drugs. So she you know went a little too close to the flame. But you know, she was a very um, um, very captivating person that influenced me yeah. quite a bit. Another picture that that made me sort of took my breath away and brought back so many uh, memories is there's a couple pictures of Juan Suarez Botas, who was the Antonio Banderas character in Philadelphia, was based on him. Such a beautiful, beautiful boy. And there are so many of those beautiful boys that uh, when you see pictures of you, just the memories come, you know, Mm -hmm. flooding back. Yeah. And Juan was sweet. He was a nice guy. Wonderful. Um, so fun. Yeah, he was an illustrator. Um, he was from Spain and had yeah. that, you know, kind of like Latin flair, you know? Uh-huh. He, he was a great, great person. Yeah, a lot of the people in the book, you know, are no longer with us. So, but, um, so, you know, in some ways there's a melancholy, but, but, um, but it's also, I think, really fun to, I mean, you know, and really uplifting to yeah. see these people in their, you know, in their prime and their beauty and to remember them in that way, too. Speaking of somebody in their prime, in the in their beauty, and when all of a sudden you start to see pictures of a young Theron Smothers. Oh, my God, yeah. Just yeah. so beautiful and fabulous and fun. You were very, you were very good friends. You, you still are very good friends with Theron. Theron and I met in the 90s. I mean, he moved here, I think, basically the same, our same story, just because he wanted to get to New York. Although he didn't even use school um, to get here, and uh, yeah, Theron was uh, Theron and I started hanging out, and uh, yeah, Theron, as you can see by the photos, was very you know fresh faced and cute, and um, had great skin, and those lips, dear God in heaven, who oh, had know, lips right? like Theron's mother? And Theron was very enthusiastic about the scene, and you know, dived, um, you know, uh, dived in head first, and so you know, he was. Um, um, uh, really um, enthusiastic about not just the drag queen set, but certainly the club kids seeing too. Interestingly, I mean, the th- thing about Darren, though, that's sort of one of the interesting, he never really lost his way in a way that I think some of the club kids did yeah. kind of go off the deep end. Girl, um, but you know what? You were with him from 98 well, to 2005. I have stories. But, but he's always been more like... He's always been like this curious creature more than anything else. And yes, everyone. Well, has- I think you guys were good for him. And I was the one that, I mean, I will pat myself on the back a little. I re- I was the one that recommended him to you yeah. um, for when you were working on the uh, the Michael Alec documentary. The Party Monster the documentary. Party Monster, he was absolutely amazing and yeah. invaluable. He got people at a certain place in a certain time, which was a feat in itself with with some of the and then after that, you you asked him to move out to LA to work for you know fledging World of Wonder in Southern California, and he you know he was very torn because yeah. you know he hadn't lived in New York you know years and years, and I said go for it you know what I mean I said no <laughs> no I said go for it because I said you can always come back no because I remember he was torn because he yeah. also worked. At- I love this. James is going to get so annoyed in a second because it's going to become the third Smothers. But he he used to work at that um, place in Times Square, right? He used to work for I can't remember who it was. Like it ran like a strip joint. Yeah, that, it was it was it, it was down in Tribeca. It was down on White Street, right? Wasn't it? It was down in Soho. Um, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And frankly, the money he was getting now was better than what we could <laughs> offer him. And he was like, well, I don't know if I should. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, um, I think he's glad that he made the decision, certainly. And um, and I think you guys helped um, give some, uh, you know, I'm sure you did this for many people, give them like, you know, a framework. 
and um, um, kind of a professionalism. So uh, that I think is all, you know, of course, for the better. Bravo to you, Randy and Fenton, for saving young lives. Well, let's go back that you realize you've taken all these pictures and you, you put them away. And then all of a sudden, when you, you realized what you had, the treasure trove of, of pictures that you had documenting this period and how you came to uh, put the exhibit together in later yeah. the book. I, you know what? It was just kind of like you have to be divorced from the scene for a while in order to really appreciate, you know, uh-huh. what you had. And so, I mean, I always looked at my photos throughout the years here and there and just thought, wow, are these photos, you know, are these photos good or am I just getting these confused with fun memories, you know? But then other people would, you know, seem to give good feedback also. So eventually, this is about seven or eight years ago, I started putting the photos together in a slideshow and um, which I... um, have presented, mostly in New York, but I've presented it in other places also. And it tells the story of that era using my photos. I narrate it. And it has an arc. It it talks about what we've been mentioning, like that this, you know, scene started percolating in the East Village. And then what happened is that, you know, club scene embraced it, you know, especially Suzanne Barsh and other promoters. And so, you know, it became a huge hit to use drag queens at the clubs. And this is, this you know, this corresponded with the club scene, uh, the club kids scene, you know, really expanding. And so, you know, all of nightlife was, you know, drag central. And then what happened is the media um, started catching on. I mean, drag for, you know, was chic among, you know, like avant-garde designers like Terry Mugler and Todd Oldham. And, you know, you could see drag queens in some music videos. But the media started getting involved. And then when RuPaul became famous, you know, with Supermodel, um, that's when, Supermodel. you know... Yeah, well, that's when, that's when like, everybody was like, you know, oh my God, where does drag queen come from? And then they dug a little deeper and discovered that there was this thriving downtown scene. And so all of a sudden, drag queens were like, you know, um, in, you know, thousands of magazine articles. And that's when daytime TV talk shows were big. And so, you know, they were asked on those along, you know, with the club kids also being on like, you know, Rivera and stuff like that. And then, um, and then it, the whole entertainment complex kind of, you know, um, joined in and drag queens started being in like, you know, music videos, TV shows, movies, blah, blah, blah. And then um, it finally kind of collapsed. Um, well, it's funny because when you look back on that period, for, I remember when Rue was in the B-52s uh, mm-hmm. video, what was it? Love Shack. It, Love Shack, yeah, yeah. When Rue is in Love Shack, and I remember saying to people, "Oh my God, this is as big as drag <laughs> is ever going to get. We can't. It can never get any bigger than this." RuPaul, where can she go from here? This is as big as RuPaul is ever going to be. And I remember just thinking that how fantastic it was. And then I remember um, when uh, uh, the supermodel came out, and you were on the cover of New York Magazine. Remember along that? With, yeah, along with other people. But yes, I was. Who were the uh, other two people? Mm-hmm. It was you. Um, and well, who else? it was a, it was one of those fold out covers. I was on the cover with um, Lipsinka and Charles Ludlow. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, and. Um, Around the same time, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert came out, and there was just that whole moment where you were thinking that uh-huh. this, that, that drag is is just this is, is as big as it's ever going to get, and then it did sort of collapse on itself right after that. Well, see, I was kind of almost at the opposite. I thought, oh, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger because. <laughs> it seemed like there was such momentum and like, you know, all these projects were coming along. And that magazine cover that you were talking about, uh, New York Magazine was declaring, you know, drag, you know, I was here to stay. And um, it was it was only about a year or two after that that it really, the scene started collapsing. And, and there were two reasons, as I tell in my acclaimed slideshow, The Drag Explosion. <laughs> and... One of them was just that the media lost interest. And back then, that's just how it went. The powers that be would say, eh, next. And that happened with, like, 
grunge and like new yeah. wave or new age stuff and boy bands. So it was kind of like, you know, next. And that's what happened with drag. And also then in New York City, the Giuliani administration was in full force by then and they were killing the nightlife. And yeah. so yeah. the club started closing. There just wasn't, you know, the venues and the work yeah. anymore for the drag scene. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing to keep it going. Yeah. So drag yeah. became very passe in some ways. Even RuPaul, you know, who had become a bona fide star, you know, that's when her career went on a hiatus for a while until she started a certain television show. I, I think, you know, Ru has talked about how, especially uh, when the Republicans took over with George Bush and, and all of those years, how it became very difficult to be underground or that there was sort of a, a, a back a backlash to uh, some of those underground scenes that were happening. Yeah, I'm yeah. I mean, um, I'm sure she's right. And I think whatever the reason, you know, I mean, all the various reasons, uh, it just caused an end to this drag explosion that had lasted, you know, from the late 80s to the mid 90s. And so it really was an era, you know, it was. But see, I think a lot, I think that's what's interesting too for a lot of young people to see the slideshow or read the book is that drag history is very modeled and you know, when I was getting into drag too, for me even it was. And so I think a lot of people don't, I, th I think a lot of young people think that drag started and ended with, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, mm -hmm. which is its own era. But of course, <laughs> there was stuff that came before that too, you know. So it's just, I, I think they're very fascinated to see that, you know, even Ru, you know, had an earlier history. Right. I think that's so important. And I think that one of the things I sort of noticed, I think, is that the part of the reason why it's so muddled is often because the story never gets told, yeah. which yeah. is why it's so important that you've done what you've done. Because I think there's a feeling, or there was a feeling, that this kind of culture was marginal or ephemeral. And so, yeah, it was fine for a night out or a guilty pleasure, but it didn't really contribute anything culturally and therefore had no value that was worth relating. Yep. When in fact, the complete opposite is the case and the truth. Yet, unless someone tells the story, it yeah. just gets sort of erased, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is so true of so much of gay history yep. because God knows we've been around forever, forever. You know, I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, you can't read a book about gay Alexander the Great, gay Florence Nightingale, gay this one, gay that one. Florence you know. Nightingale was gay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> it, that, I mean, that right. So I think that that's what's so special and amazing about what you have done. Well, his, history belongs to the writer. There's often the, the chatter of, like, the su success of Drag Race has sort of dampened or killed a certain part of uh, of the spirit or energy of underground drag, it's sort of the opposite. It's this idea that the more awareness there is, and also, by the way, the more success it has, the more ability we have for it to be, to, for, for, for it to sort of have a, a broader umbrella to introduce more people. There's legends who, who never have or never will be on Drag Race. But they're aware, you know, it's that thing all ships rise in a way. Oh, totally agreed. Totally agreed. High tide raises all ships. Yeah. Making the, the connection, connecting the dots. It's not, drag is not about the best wig and the best shablam. It just never has been. It never will be. And there's room. But it's this, this magical thing. And this is such a magical moment. Like this. This book pinpoints part of, of, of you know, a, a turning point. Anyway, you know, whatever. It is. It, it is. I, I'm interested. Do you still take pictures? Do you still go out and take pictures? And what, what, is, what is happening in New York? Um, I do, but no more than anybody else. Randy, thank you very much. And, um, and I, 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 people ask me a lot, like, Oh, you know what I mean? Were things better back then? You know what I mean? Or 
or has, or, or specifically, you know, has drag race, you know, killed the underground. Eh, I, things would have changed no matter what, you know what I mean? And I don't think you can look back at like that. And I think that that's one of the interesting things about drag is just that it sort of like evolves. And also I think that, um, it's all for the better. I think ultimately drag is about show business. And so to have more job opportunities and more interest in drag is better for everybody, you know? So I'm like, you know, I think that you have to be realistic. I mean, I'm glad that if my book captures a certain era and like pays homage to it, but I don't want everyone to say that, or, you know, expect people to say, oh yeah, that's when drag was the best. You know what I mean? It's, it, it was what it was. You know what I mean? And now let's move on to something else, you know, at the same time. Well, it, it, but do you still go out and tell me about the drag scene in New York now and tell me what what what, what you know? Well, I can't say I'm like, you know, a nightclubber anymore, but I try to keep like abreast of what's going on. A lot of, so much of the scene now is in Brooklyn too. And, you know, I live in Manhattan and um, it's a schlep for me to go to clubs. But anyways, I do, I, I mean, the New York drag scene seems very exciting to me. It seems like there's so much going on. There's a, you know, big scene in Hell's Kitchen. There's a big scene in Brooklyn. If I was young, you know what I mean? I would gravitate towards the Brooklyn scene. That's more my sensibility. But, um, but certainly, you know what I mean? I can appreciate, you know, all different sorts of drag, including the more showbizy stuff you might see in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us. We've had a great time. It's so nice to see you and congratulations on the book. It's, I'm so excited for you. And it's, so, it's such a, everyone needs to get this book. It's absolutely fabulous. Uh, Renny and Fenton, last thoughts, final thoughts? I hope to see you out on the West Coast soon. Yes, I'd love it. I will be coming to California at some point. That'd be great. Thank you, Randy Fenton, James. It was all great to see all of you. Thank you so much. Love you. you. Thank you so much for being on our show. 